John chapter 15. Very often when we talk about the Christian life and we talk about the things that Christians are supposed to be about doing, when we, when we hear from the scriptures about the kind of radical lifestyle that Jesus calls us to in, compared, in comparison to the kind of lifestyle we see the world living, um, if most of us are honest with ourselves, we think, I can't do that. We think, I can't live that way. That's, uh, how, how, how am I going to do that? How am I supposed to achieve that? And yet very often the kind of radical lifestyle that seems radical to us is what is portrayed by Jesus as simple normal living in God's kingdom. I joked with someone several weeks ago that you hear these series, sermon series titles about you know, radical and radical living. About what, and I, and I so I'm going to call mine normal. Normal living. Because that's how Jesus views it. These things that the world views as radical, that we view as radical, Jesus says, that's just normal. That's the kind of normal life that you live when, when you know me, when you are called to be my disciple. But again, it takes us right back to the beginning. It says, how do we do that? Where do we find the strength? Where do we find the wisdom, the power to actually live the way that, that God wants us to live, that he calls us to live as Christians? And we have been looking the past several weeks at these I am statements of Jesus in John's gospel. We have been looking at Jesus holding himself up as the ultimate and final need for humanity. That in him we find the answer to all of life's questions, all of life's problems, the ultimate problem even of being made right with God. And this morning we come to the end of this series of this, these I am statements. We come to the end seeing the last I am statement that Jesus says. And in saying this statement, what he helps us to understand is that, again, it is by him that we live the Christian life. It is being united to Christ that we live the way that he wants us to. That to the degree that we are living closely with Jesus, that our life is bound together with his, then we will have all of the resources we need at our disposal in order to say no to sin, yes to righteousness, and to be the kind of reproducing disciples that Jesus calls us to be. Well, this is what we want to see this morning from the first part of John 15, and I invite you to follow along as I begin reading at verse 1, where we see Jesus saying for the last time, I am, I am the true vine. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full." This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. 
Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. This is the word of God. In the first seven verses or so, Jesus lays out this extended metaphor of uh, the vine and the branch. It's not really a parable in the sense that there's no story involved. Rather, it is imagery that he picks up and uses in order to teach spiritual truth. And in verses 9 and following, he goes back and gives a sort of commentary on this analogy he's just drawn out between the vine and the branches. These things taking together then, all 17 verses, what we see is the relationship relationship that Jesus' people are supposed to have with him. And what we see is that it's not just a mechanical relationship. It's not just to push a button and pull this lever and ding, out comes a relationship with Jesus. Rather, it is a very organic relationship, one in which our lives are knit together ultimately by love. So what does a life united with Christ through love look like? What does a life that is dependent on growing in Christ look like? This morning, we want to see four effects that should be, that will be present if in our lives we continue to live with Jesus. That is, if we continue to abide in Him. Four evidences of our being branches connected to Jesus, who is the true vine. So the first thing that we will see, the first evidence of our life with Jesus is this. Life with Jesus produces spiritual fruit. Life with Jesus produces spiritual fruit. Jesus begins here by saying, I am the true vine. Now, it's not really there in any of the other I am statements, this word of trueness, but implicitly it is there. When Jesus says he is the bread of life, he is saying he is the true bread from heaven. When Jesus says that he is the light of the world, he is the true light that has been coming into the world and has already come. That he is the good shepherd, he is the true shepherd of his people. There's a sense in which all these things, uh, we can say, Jesus is saying he is the true whatever. But here he very intentionally makes it explicit. question is why? Why here does he say, I am the, not just the vine, but I am the true vine? Well, you've got to know your Old Testament. In fact, you'll, you may have picked this up in reading through Jeremiah if you've been tracking along with us. God in the Old Testament always pictures, not always, but very often pictures his people as a vine, a choice vine that he says that he, he took uh, and he's planted in his vineyard and he expects because he has chosen this vine, he has cared for it, he expects good fruit to come forth from it, from his people Israel. And instead he says, though I planted a choice vine, all I got was sour grapes. I did not get the kind of spiritual fruit that I was expecting. Instead, I got something nasty that's not good for anything. It's not good for salad. It's not good for drinking. It's not good for anything but throwing out of the vineyard. And now Jesus comes and he says, I'm not like the old vine. I'm not like 
Israel as the vine. I come and I am the true vine. Where Israel failed, I succeed. Where they did not live up to God's expectations, I have and I will continue to do so. Where he expected righteousness and found only sin, he will never find sin, but only righteousness in me. Furthermore, Jesus says to those who are connected to him as well through faith, they will not be like Israel either but rather they will produce good fruit, good spiritual fruit of righteousness insofar as they stay connected to Him, the true vine. Because it is Him as the true vine and Him alone that enables His people to produce the kind of fruit that God expects. Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If we abide in Christ, as if we remain in him, if we remain connected to him, remain close to him, then we will, we will experience the kind of spiritual life that God desires us to experience. But if we try and do it on our own, if we try and experience the kind of godly life, the kind of spiritual fruit bearing that God expects, but in our own strength, in our own power, apart from Christ, He says, you can't do it. You're going to be like Israel. You're going to produce sour grapes. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Here, Jesus also goes beyond just the I am statement to tell us something of the Father as well. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. God is pictured as the gardener who takes care of the vineyard. And from what I've read about vineyards then and vineyards now, there's not a whole lot that has changed uh, in that area of horticulture. If some branches don't produce fruit, you snip them off. You get rid of them. So that way the nutrients are not wasted on those branches. Likewise, the ones that are producing fruit, you, you trim them back, you, you, you clean off the rough spots so that way more fruit can bud out and be produced. And Jesus says this is exactly what God does with people. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, two kinds of people are envisioned here. First, there are those that are pruned. This is the experience of God's people. You are connected to Christ. You are abiding in Him, but you could be doing better. You could be producing more fruit. And God in His love, He says, okay, we're stepping it up a notch. You've got some things in your life that may be sin. First of all, snip, snip, we're getting rid of those. But then secondly, there may be some things that aren't sin. They may be good gifts that I've given to you, but you're starting to love them more than you love me, and it's hindering your growth. Instead of deepening your faith in me, pursuing your walk with me, you're, you're holding on to this thing, and it's distracting you. So out of love, snip, snip, it's gone. I'm going to prune down your life so that you will more closely abide in me and come to experience more fruit production, a deeper level of spiritual fruit that will be produced from our lives. Now you may wonder, why is it so important that as God's people we produce spiritual fruit? After all, we're saved, right? That's the only thing that really matters, right? As long as we're not going to hell, that's, that's really all that matters. We can just pretty much go on uh, with, with our life now. And yeah, if we do some good things, that, that's okay. But uh, what's the big deal, right? 
Well, that's not what Jesus says. That's not what Jesus says at all. In fact, just the opposite. He says this, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, the Father takes away. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Here is the sobering reality. Not everyone who claims to be in Christ is in Christ. Not everyone who claims to be a Christian is a Christian. The genuine Christian will not lose their salvation because God is the one who is enabling them to continually abide in Christ. But there are those who claim to be in Christ. There are those who on the surface give evidence of being in Christ, of producing spiritual fruit. And yet, we so often see them walk away from the faith, don't we? And we begin to wonder, what happened? He looked like he was connected. He looked like he was abiding. He looked like he was bearing fruit. What happened? Well, the author of this gospel, John, he will later write to Christians and he will say, by virtue of the fact that they left, they reveal that they were not abiding in Jesus and they never were. In 1 John 2, the apostle says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. He says, by virtue of the fact that they didn't stay in the faith, that tells us they were never really in the faith. So here's the reality. It's very much like the parable of soils that Jesus teaches in Matthew 13. You have some people that are so closely associated with Jesus. They so faithfully attend church. They are so, so, so energetically involved in events that to us, from our perspective, it looks like they're in Christ, that they are attached to the true vine, that they are abiding in Him. They appear to be God's people. But God knows they're really not. And on the last day, Jesus will say to them, Depart from me, I never knew you. Not, I knew you for a little while, and then you turned sour, and so I got rid of you. No, he says, I never knew you. You were never really attached to me by faith. You say, well, give me an example of this. I got a perfect example for it. Judas Iscariot. Here's a man, and Jesus, in divine foreknowledge, knows ultimately in choosing this man that he's going to betray him, that he will be the human means by which he is handed over into the Jews and the Romans to be crucified and bear the sins of the world. But the disciples don't know that. What the disciples see is one of their own, going with them from town to town, experiencing both the joys of being with Jesus and the difficulties of being rejected by the world. He is the one that is preaching side by side with them, proclaiming the things that Jesus has taught them. In fact, they trust Judas so much, they so believe he is one of them, they trust him with the money. This is why we don't take volunteers for money counters at this church, right? We don't take volunteers for the treasurer. We want someone we can trust. It should say something to you about Pat that we trust her with all the church's money, okay? Now, we also know where she lives. And so, no, I'm just using but no. <laughs> no we, we trust her, Okay? And, and, and likewise, they trusted Judas. When, when, when he says, one of you will betray me, none of them went, uh-huh, that's, I bet it's him. I bet it's Judas. No! I said, who could it be? Is it me? Is it me? No one said, oh, but it's this guy over here. 
It's only after events play out. It's only after he has betrayed Jesus. It's only then that they look back retroactively and say, oh yeah, he wasn't really in. And so you can have comments for, off the side that after everything is resolved and the church begins to grow, they can look back and say, hey, we're missing money. Judas was the one stealing it. And not only betrayed Christ in the end, he was actually betraying Christ all along. Here's one who gave every evidence of fruit bearing. And yet Jesus says, no, he was not in me. In fact, Jesus goes so far in, verse, in Matthew chapter 26 to say, it would have been better if Judas had not even been born. He was so close, and yet he missed it. This is why fruit bearing is so important, my friends. If you're sitting back, just kind of cruising in the, in, the, in the Christian life spiritually, if you just kind of throw the sails up and say, wherever the wind takes me, that's where I'm going to go, let me tell you, you are in danger of hell. Because Jesus himself says, one of the markers is, unless you're connected to me, unless you're bearing fruit, you should have no confidence that you will be with me in the final day. Nevertheless, for those who are abiding, for those who truly are connected to Jesus, then your experience will be one of producing real, tangible, righteous, spiritual fruit. It will not be one of just lollygagging around, of making a small impact on the kingdom. Small perhaps to other people, but large in God's eyes. Because Jesus himself says, if you are connected to me, if you are the branch connected to this vine, you will produce fruit. The second evidence that we see of being connected with Jesus. The second thing here. Life with Jesus results in God glorifying joy. Life with Jesus results in God glorifying joy. Jesus begins to explain the implications of the metaphor he's just given in the imagery of the vine and the branches. After all, you think about the fact that it's a nice picture, isn't it? Vine and branches and being connected organically in life. But it's very hard to talk about love when you're talking about plants, right? Right? I mean, no love lost if a plant dies in my house, okay? Uh, in fact, I like plants that have been killed because that means they're in the fridge ready for me to eat, okay? Uh, so, so, that's, so that's good, okay? You can't talk about love and relationships to a lot of plant unless you're a weirdo, okay? And so Jesus here goes on and he explains, he explains that his disciples remain in him and bear fruit. And so in verse 8, he says this, he draws out the implications more. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Note the logic of Jesus here. When we bear fruit, we reveal we are Jesus' disciples. We give evidence that we are really His. And when we prove to be genuinely those that are believing and abiding in Jesus, then that brings glory to God. Why? Because He is the one who sent Jesus in the first place. Think about it like this. When, when it's Christmas morning or Christmas Eve night or whenever you open presents and your kid opens this thing up and it's this toy... And, and they say something along the lines of, I can't believe that you bought me this. This is so exciting. This is so cool. Invariably, at some point, as much as they love that toy, they will put that toy down, even if it's for a second, and they will run and they will hug you. Maybe they will kiss you. Maybe you'll be fortunate enough to hear something along the lines of, you're the best dad ever. Or the best mom ever. And then, of course, they're immediately back to the toy and, and playing with it, right? But well, why do they do that? Because the gift is great but you're the one that gave them the gift. 
You're the one that, that went to the store and you listened to them when they said, I'm interested in this, I really like this. And, you, and you're the one that worked hard and got the money and you know, you've given it to them as a gift on Christmas. Therefore, they glorify you as the giver of the gift. Likewise, when we turn to Jesus and we abide in Him, when we say, yes, Christ is worth following, Christ is worth our devotion, Christ is worth our efforts at remaining in Him, then we're honoring the one who sent Him, namely God Himself. So the question is, how do we do this remaining? How do we do this abiding? What is it all about? Jesus has been talking about abiding in Him and through abiding in Him, producing fruit. But how do we do that? How do we abide so that we can produce the fruit? Well, Jesus doesn't leave us hanging. In fact, He says it's all rooted in divine love. He gives the basis first, and then He moves out from there to give the specifics. In verse 9, He says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, I know some of you have grown up around the Bible. Some of you have been in church long enough that you read through the Bible, and it's just kind of like, yep, heard that before, and you're moving on. Don't do that, particularly in this passage. Think about what Jesus is saying here. As the Father loved me, so have I loved you. When you think about the, the magnitude of that statement, Jesus is saying the love that exists between me as God the Son and Him as God the Father, a love that is rooted in the eternal fellowship of the triune God, you are experiencing a part of that when I pour out my love on you. That should blow your mind. I mean, that should, that should make you want to, call, to lie down with a headache because it is so phenomenally wild. We're talking about a God who forever, no beginning, no end, has always been here. That in of itself is enough to blow your mind. But He has constantly and forever been eternally in loving fellowship with Himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. No arguments, no bitterness, no anger, no, no slights verbally. Nothing. Perfect, loving fellowship. And he says, that kind of deep intimacy I have shared with you because I have loved you. They say, how can you know he really loves me like that? That's a big claim. How can, how can I know? What is the evidence of knowing God really loves me like that? The answer is the cross. When we were enslaved to sin with no thought of God or His way, when we were wholly deserving of God's wrath for our rebellion against Him and our dishonoring of His name, Jesus went to the cross for us. He went to the cross to experience God's judgment for our sin, and that is the proof of Christ's love for His people. The old hymn writer, what, what more could He do? Oh, how He loves you. Oh, how He loves me. Oh, how He loves you and me. What more could He do? He offered His own life for our sin. So, when we understand that that is the kind of love that has been reflected to us, how do we respond? How do we respond with that, being shown that kind of love? We respond with love. We respond with love. We respond to the love that has been shown to us with a love of our own. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. And this is not a simple kind of emotional response. Today, loving God and loving others is reduced to some kind of butterflies in our stomach, walking around in a certain kind of uh, daze with a glazed look in our eye with a junior high girl with a deep crush on a freshman jock, okay? No offense to the junior high girls, but you know what I'm talking about. That kind of, ah, <sighs> Jesus, 
That's not what he's talking about. I mean, there should be an emotional weight that is there. There can be a tear that comes to your eye that can be sobbing when you think about him on the cross for you. But Jesus says it goes beyond that. It goes beyond that. He says, first and foremost, you show me love by obeying me. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You say you love Jesus all you want, but unless you obey his commands, he says, you don't really love me. You can say, oh yeah, I love Jesus. Absolutely. Do you obey him? Well, not really. You'll love him. I mean, that's what Jesus says here. And he doesn't just say it here. It's a stream that runs throughout the scriptures. Now, does that mean that you are perfectly obeying him, that you never defy his command or rebel against him? No. But what it says is, your heart's desire, the trajectory of your life is one of, God has loved me, I want to love him, therefore I seek to obey. That's what Jesus is driving out here. Obedience isn't an afterthought. It's the driving, loving response of every day remembering the gospel and Christ who loved you. So to abide in Christ, to remain in Him, to remain in close relationship with Him is accomplished by loving Him. And that love is evidenced by our obeying Him. And that obeying Him has been possible through staying in His Word. Isn't this what Jesus said? Verse 7, abide in Him and allow His words to abide in you. This is our call then, to love the God who first loved us and gave His life for us by abiding in His love through obeying His commands which He reveals in His Word. That is our duty, but it is also our delight. Notice what Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you so your life may be dull and pointless and crazy with no fun. Is that what he says? No. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus says, you abide in my love. You love me and so obey me. You obey me by remaining in my word and you will have a life of joy. Not just a little joy. Not just comparable joy to the world, the fullness of joy, my joy, will exist in you. Jesus says that his experience of relating to the Father is the basis for our experience. He says, just as I obeyed my Father, so also you obey me. In John, or rather in Hebrews 10, uh, Jesus quotes from the Psalms and says he delights to do the Father's will. In fact, so much so, in John 4, he says, it is like food to my soul to obey my heavenly Father and keep his commands. And so here he says again, I have kept my Father's commands and abide in His love. Therefore, you keep my commands and abide in my love. So many people walk through life, even Christian, even the Christian life, and they're miserable. They're absolutely miserable. There is no happiness whatsoever. All they do is walk around and complain, complain, complain. The weather's too cold. The weather's too hot. My bills are too high. The gas prices are crazy. Da, 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 da. The seats are too comfy. The seats aren't comfy enough. Whatever it is, they will find a reason to complain and they go around with a big mopey face. And if I was in the world, I would say, I do not want to be a Christian if that's what it looks like. And what does Jesus say here? Jesus, that's not what you were created for. You're not created for a life of misery. You're created for a life of joy. If you 
don't have joy in your life, it's because you don't have enough Jesus in your life. That's what he says. Abide in me and your joy will be full. Life with Jesus brings joy, a kind of joy that ultimately brings glory to God because the joy that you have comes in obeying God in loving response to Him for what He has done. You delight and exalt in the Savior who died for you and therefore, and therefore bring God glory for what He has done. Third, life with Jesus creates loving community. Life with Jesus creates loving community. Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Now He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Now Jesus' command here to love one another, that is for His people to be loving His people, does not exhaust Jesus' commands. Just read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. You'll see a lot of other commands, but it does serve as a kind of foundation for all his other commands, specifically about how to relate to one another as his people. All of them are summarized in this massive command love one another. Love them so much that you're even willing to lay down your life for them. And of course, Jesus himself sets the pattern and is the exultimate example of love in that he himself laid down his life for his people on the cross. Now, if you think about the implications of what Jesus is saying here, love one another, Christians love Christians to the point that you're even willing to die for them. You think about the implications of that for the church scene here, and it's devastating. It, it is devastating to us. Why? Well, let me come at it from sideways a little bit. Think about this. Today the growth of social media is nothing less than phenomenal. By social media I mean technology that connects us on a social level. Okay, So we're talking about YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and chat rooms and that kind of a thing. 96% of the generation right after me, 96% of that generation is connected in a social networking environment. Last year, one out of every eight marriages began with two people meeting through social media. Didn't know, didn't know each other a lick before that, and they met through social media. But it's not limited to younger people. The fastest growing group on Facebook right now is the 55 to 65 range. In fact, so many people are on Facebook right now that if it were a country, it would be the fourth largest country in the world behind China, India, and the United States. Now, all of that can be great. All of that can be good. It's not inherently bad. Connected to social media, I'm able to get quick updates on what's going on in people's lives. I can pray for them. Something bad happens and they post it on Facebook, guess what? I can stop what I'm doing right there and I can pray for them. They need, they need something. Hey, I'm from my cell phone. I just ran out of gas. Something's wrong with the gas gauge. Can somebody help? Half hour later, someone's got a gallon of gas for me or something. Okay? Uh, my experience has been through those things that, that it strengthens the relationships I have with certain people in this church because I don't have to wait for Sunday and Wednesday to connect with them. Anytime I can get connected to them and know what's going on in their life and not only feel a part of their life but also be involved in their life by praying for them or helping to meet their needs. Nevertheless, there's also an inherent danger with social networking. The danger is this, that your online experience can become your only experience. Think about it like this. When online shopping really hit big, remember when Amazon was like new and it was like, you know, you're going online and you're ordering things, you can order groceries and they're coming to your door and all this kind of stuff. You know, what was the old joke? 
It was this. Why bother uh, getting dressed and putting yourself together and looking decent and dragging a razor across your face and a comb through your hair and going to a store when you can just sit on your couch and underwear and click a few buttons and get the same stuff, right? I mean, that was the whole thing. It actually showed a guy sitting there in boxer shorts, you know, hair going, boop, you know, a cup of coffee barely awake, and, you know, he's buying all of his groceries online, you know? It's great. Well, here's the thing. That translates into church life today. If you have internet access, you go home today on Google or something, and you look up online church, and you'll be amazed what you find. There are entire churches that never gather together in a place like this, that never see one another face to face. They just open up dialogue boxes on a computer screen somewhere and watch some guy in a basement somewhere with a video camera hooked up for their sermon. That's it. It's great. I mean, you don't have to put any effort into saying hi to somebody and actually having a real smile on your face and acting interested in their life. You can just get up in the morning, push the button on your coffee maker, go to the bathroom, sit down with your donut and coffee, and watch a guy talk for 15, 20 minutes, and then you're done. And if you feel like you've made some decision, you can click a box on the screen and you feel good about yourself. And you have these online churches that constitute thousands and thousands of people that say, I attend church every week, sometimes multiple times a week. I just log on, and there I am, meeting with God's people gathered. You know what I say to that? Give me a break. What in the world are you thinking? What, what does Jesus say here? Love one another. I can't love somebody through a computer screen. Especially when he says, love someone to the point that you die for them. How do I die for Jerry Ann if I've never seen him face to face? I can't do that. If he's a, an emoticon on a computer somewhere, I don't know where he's at. He could be in Bangladesh for all I know. How can I love him to the point of dying for him? I can't. What Jesus is saying is, you actually have to get involved in people's life. It's not just an online experience. It's not just this disconnectedness. What's even worse is people that actually show up to a physical location like this, and they don't love anybody. They don't get involved with anybody. They don't serve the church. They just sit and plot and do nothing. Jesus says, that's not how my people are supposed to respond to one another. They're supposed to love one another. As Pat prayed earlier, when one of us is hurt, we all feel the pain. When one of us is happy, we all get excited and feel joy. When one of us is brought to tears for some reason, all of us experience that emotion along with them. That's the kind of loving, involved community that Jesus is talking about has having. You say, but it's difficult. That requires us to spend time actually getting to know people. That it requires us to actually become vulnerable in our own life in order to open ourselves up to others. Yeah, you're right. It's work. It's not easy. But Jesus says, if you're connected to me, you can do anything. I am a true vine, and you are the branches. Just as I have loved you, so you love one another. Not in your own strength, not in your own wisdom, not in ways that you think are right. You stay connected to me, and I will keep you connected to my people. I will grow up within you the kind of love that I expect you to have and will knit you together as a loving community insofar as you remain connected with me. And Jesus specifically says, he specifically says this by implication, if you don't love my people, you don't love me. If you don't love my people, you don't love me. Why? Because he's gone on along and he said, if you love me, you obey my commands. Here's my command, love one another. So you don't love one another, you're not obeying me, which means you're not loving me. 
And if we don't get that, again, the Apostle John says it very clearly in his letter, his first letter to the churches. And he says, how can you say you love God who you have not seen when you do not love your brother whom you have seen? Ultimately, it's all tied together. You can imagine in some kind of scenario where someone marries uh, a, a single person, but they've already got a kid. And one person looks you in the face and says, I love you with all my heart, but I feel nothing for your child. Well, then forget that. I'm out of here, right? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work that way. This is, my, this is my own son. This is my child. This is my progeny. Regardless of how it's happened before, this is my child whom I love. And if you're going to love me, you're going to have to love them too. It's a family thing. Likewise, Jesus says, these are the people that I have given my life for. I have died for them. Look at one another across this room. And to the degree that they are really believers, they really place their faith in Jesus, Jesus has died for them. He has spilt their blood for them. How dare you say, I don't want to love them? Jesus says, then you can't love me because they're my family. They are my brothers and sisters whom I gave my life for. If you're going to love me, then you're going to love one another as well. And again, you say, I don't know how to do that. Don't worry about it. You stay close to Jesus and he will create the kind of love that you need to have for one another. Finally, life with Jesus creates divine friendship. Life with Jesus creates divine friendship. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Picking up on this friendship word, the disciples, uh, this friendship ideal the disciples will have with one another, Jesus goes on to say their friendship also exists with himself. And it's important we notice here the friendship does not run equally both ways. We are not a friend to Jesus in the same way he is a friend to us. Make no mistakes, the disciples are friends with him. Jesus says very clearly, I no longer call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Think about it like this. One of my favorite movies is Sabrina. stars Harrison Ford. I don't know if you've seen it or not. If you haven't, rent it or borrow it from me. Okay? It's absolutely hilarious. All right? In the context of the story, Harrison Ford plays a billionaire who has taken his father's money as a millionaire and he has caused it to explode with uh, tech business technology stuff. Okay? Now, he's got the same chauffeur his dad had, though. And at one point in the movie, it's revealed that the chauffeur actually has quite a bit of money himself because... The, the, the senior, the father, when he's calling on the phone doing business transactions, talking to people in the back, he's never put the window up. So the whole time the chauffeur's been listening in on the business deals. He knows, hey, the stock's getting ready to go up. So I've got a little bit of money, I'm going to buy a couple shares. And boom, at the end of the whole thing, two, two uh, father and son, uh, he's, got, he's got some money saved up. But here's the thing. It was never the intention of the father to do that for the man. He's just the chauffeur. He's just the hired help. It's not someone he likes. It's not someone he has a relationship with. He says, get the car ready, and we're going somewhere. Clean the car so it looks nice for this event. And Jesus says, you're not like that. You're not like that. See, the chauffeur never said, uh, Mr. Larrabee, why are we going downtown today? He just said, what are you, nuts? Shut up and drive. You're just the help. What are you talking to me like that for? It doesn't matter. It's my business. And Jesus says, that's not you. You're not just the servant anymore. Everything the Father has told me about the kingdom, I've told to you. 
all the plans that I have for going to the cross and redeeming humanity, all the plans for building my church that, that, that you need to know, I have told you. What the Father's revealed to me, I have revealed to you. Life in the kingdom of God, the new covenant, I have explained to you what it is and why it's going to take place and what it will ultimately result in. Therefore, you're no longer just servants. You are also my friends. But, but, they're still not, they're still not on equal par with Jesus. They may be more than servants, but they're still servants. And here's why. Listen to what he says. He says, you are my friends, verse 14, if you do what I command you. Now think about that for a minute. If one of you, if Gene came up and said, hey, Pastor John, you're my friend if you do what I command you, I'd say, I don't need that kind of friendship. Off you go. See you later. I'll find somebody else, right? I mean, that's not how human friendship works, is it? But guess what? That's how friendship with God works. You see, it's interesting that, that the disciples are said to be friends, of, uh, friends with Jesus, but Jesus is never said to be friends with the disciples. Abraham is, is the friend of God, but guess what? He's not God's friend in the sense that God doesn't have friends. We, however, have friends, and one of our friends is God. There's a distinction that's drawn so that we realize that we have been brought into intimate fellowship with God. We are not equals with God. The relationship doesn't work both ways. We don't give God anything. A friendship is reciprocal. I have a friend. I do things for him out of love. He does things for me out of love. It doesn't work that way. We can't do anything for God. How can we serve him? He says, I'm not served by anything. I don't need anything. But you can do what I ask you to do, demonstrating your love. And in fact, if you do that, then you show yourself to be my friends. That doesn't lessen that qualified friendship, however, does not lessen the friendship itself. It doesn't lessen the love we have received from Christ. Jesus says in the end, it's only possible to have this relationship because of me. I died to make it possible. I called out to you. I initiated this whole thing. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the Father's name, He may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. When Jesus came on the scene, he sought out the disciples and said, follow me. And they followed. They didn't come up to Jesus and say, can we follow you? Can we follow you? Can we follow you? Can we, can we be your friends? No. They were off doing their own thing. And he shows up and he starts preaching the kingdom. And he says, you, Andrew, you follow me. You, John, drop the nets. You come with me and be my disciple. And they did it. They went. He saved them out of a life of sin to be the very foundation of his church. Likewise with us. We are, well, we are still sinners. We're not looking for God unless God is first looking for us, unless He is, by His Spirit, drawing us to Himself, allowing us to, to have our, our eyes gazed off what we see, to see Him and who He is and all of His brilliance. And in choosing to call out to us, He also equips us. He, he chooses to cause us to remain in Him so that we will have the kind of resources we need to fulfill His calling on our life. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing, but by abiding with Him, we can do all that He asks us to do. In fact, he gives us such assurance of this that Jesus says, if you're abiding in me, if you're abiding in my words, my commands, loving one another, believing in me, then whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Think about that. If we're really abiding in Christ, seeking to glorify God by revealing that we're truly disciples, Jesus says, you ask something in my name, that is you ask something that I would ask for, something that brings honor to me and my kingdom, then the Father will give it to you. That's how close you are to me in friendship.
So when we live in Christ, we have a friend in him like no other, and we can sing with confidence the old hymn, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Several weeks ago, we began a series of sermons by looking to Jesus saying, Before Abraham was, I am. In that context, their Jewish religious leaders tried to pit Abraham against Jesus with Abraham coming out on top. And Jesus is clear. He says, I am not just superior to to Abraham. I am Abraham's God. I am the I am. And as God incarnate, Jesus offered himself as the great all-satisfying treasure for humanity. And so he could say things like this, I am the bread of life. Just as our physical body aches for bread to fill our needs, so also Jesus fulfills the longing of our souls. Jesus could say, I am the light of the world. He brings light to spiritual darkness. He comes revealing God, guiding us to a saving knowledge of Him. Jesus could say, I am the door of the sheep. He is the way, the entrance for God's people to God. They have to go through Him in order to know God and be known by Him. And then Jesus would say, I am the good shepherd. He's not only the way to God, but he is the one who even leads us to the way. And once we have arrived, he is there to protect us and to provide for us, being the shepherd of our souls. Jesus could say, I am the resurrection and the life. In him there is fullness of life, both now and in the future. He has revealed this by himself, having the power to be raised from the dead and promising that one day, likewise, we would share in that. Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the perfect revelation of God the Father, showing that He is the only way to experience life and salvation in Him. And Jesus can say this morning, I am the true vine. And coming to know Him, and we come to know the Father, and we are able to live as His people by abiding in Christ's love through His Word. From beginning to end, with everything in between, life is all about Jesus Christ. This morning, the response is only one and one thing only. The entire purpose that John says his gospel was written, you must believe in Jesus. You must so believe in Jesus that everything else pales in comparison to Him. You must so believe in Him that your very life depends on it. You must believe in Him so that you will be united with Him and have life everlasting with God. Father, it is the joyous prospect of life with Christ that sits in our minds and our hearts now. Father, help us never to think in a blasé way about Jesus about the gospel as something that we have believed in once and now we've moved on from. Father, help us to remind ourselves that everything is about Jesus Christ. It's all about Him. That, Father, not just the getting in, not just the future, but even now, we live a life of joy that honors You by abiding in Him. Father, we pray that You would help work in our hearts the desire to know and to love Him above all things. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.